0: Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about something really cool that we're giving away with this series. I'm preaching these sermons because I'm convinced that when we talk about or think about Jesus as the Messiah, we attach little or even no meaning to that phrase, the Messiah. It's my hope in this series that we'll better understand how rich and important that term is. And so we created this devotional booklet for the series that takes 18 passages of scripture from the Old Testament that Jewish people thought of when they thought of and longed for the upcoming Messiah. With each of those passages, we've connected a brief daily devotional thought that kind of connects to the idea that the passage teaches about the coming Messiah, about who Jesus will be. My hope, and I believe this is going to happen, is that when you read these devotional booklets, you will have a better understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, and out of that, you will appreciate Jesus more, and you'll appreciate how important and world-changing his birth was. You can download one of those booklets by going to wilsonville.church slash messiah. That's wilsonville.church slash messiah. I hope you do that. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. If you're like me, uh, and and I, th- and I think most of you are a little bit like me, then, then maybe it's really easy to be overly comfortable with Jesus. I don't mean that we should like feel distant from Jesus, but, but theologians talk about, you know, kind of two sides of God, the transcendence of God, like he's really big and he's out there and he created. And then the imminence of God, he's near to us, he cares about us, he's, he's with us, all of those things. And I think as kind of modern American Christians, at least, you know, for this modern American Christian, uh, we we really gravitate towards that the eminence of God we really think about Jesus in terms of being our friend we like to sing that the 90s created a whole set of music that that basically sang to Jesus like he was our boyfriend uh and and so you know what I'm talking about right if you grew up in the church and, and 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 you know if you go back in time uh some people are laughing harder than maybe they should have at that like you were really a 90s church kid um but like if you were to go back further and and you know, before the modern uh, Christian music movement, they in large part sang like about God in these very transcendent terms, like he was big and they used words that we don't understand, you know, and and they, they really worked to, to describe God. Even in preaching, if you go back and you read some of the famous preacher sermons of days gone by, the 1800s, the 1700s. Uh, it's it's so different than, than how we talk about God when we talk about God now. And, and I think that uh, uh, both are true. God is transcendent and God is imminent. But, but like I said, for this modern American Christian, it's really easy for me to just think about Jesus as as a friend, as somebody who cares about me, as somebody who wants to have a, a deep and personal relationship with me and to forget that that same Jesus is also the transcendent Jesus who created us, who sustains us in all of those things. And, and what I love about the Christmas story and specifically something we're going to look at today in the Christmas story is that it is a wonderful picture uh, of, of Jesus, Jesus coming into our lives and, and wanting to be in our presence, wanting to be in our midst while at the same time the authors of the story who are teaching us about the birth of Jesus are showing him to be this transcendent King, the son of God and it, it's a weird clash maybe you don't think about it because you're focused on the imminence of Jesus but maybe you, you you don't really see it but but here's this baby laying in a manger feeding trough for animals and yet the authors are describing this this king this son of God and perhaps nowhere is that contrast more just uh Polarizing than, than in the verse that we're going to look at today, and it says something really big for us that I think is going to help us as we study Jesus as the Messiah and what that means what we'll see today is is such a an important thing if we're going to really understand and, and grasp how great it is that the Messiah finally came after the Jewish people had been longing for him for centuries. We're just gonna look at one verse today, Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So I wanna point out before we before we continue that that here at the beginning of this, it says this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And last week I set up that title in general. And so if you weren't here, I wanna set it up just briefly. Again, the Messiah is this long awaited figure who the Jewish people believed would reign as king over the Israelites forever, that he would set things right. I've said that in the most broad sense. This devotional booklet that we have produced for this series you can get a hard copy in the back as you leave or you can get an electronic version just sign up on on creekside.me for our newsletter and we'll make sure that you get a copy of it but it but it gives us these verses that the Jewish people tied to this coming figure who would rule and reign over their people and again broadest sense I can say who would set things right. And I don't think that the average Jewish person really thought about what it meant for the coming king to set things right. They had an idea that he would overthrow the Romans, that their, their culture, their nation would kind of go back to the glory days of David who this king was going to reign in the line of in the lineage of but I don't think they really thought about it they had all these verses that you can read here but they just they just knew he would make it better make it better you know like when you're my daughter's sick my wife isn't here today my son's not here today and and and, uh and it's so interesting to watch uh, my relationship with Hazel deteriorate when when she's sick because she like hates my guts and wants her mom <laughs> like I am a symbol of not mom that's all I become uh, and all day yesterday i I was that very thing and and it's interesting because you know we think of of a sick child and the way they want their mom and uh they don't even know what the mom's going to do to make it better right it, but the idea of mom is still comforting. And I think this is what the Jewish people looked forward to when they looked forward to the Messiah. And so Matthew says, this is how the birth, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the king who had set things right came about. And then he tells us this incredible thing. There's this girl named Mary and she is pledged to be married to this man named Joseph now when you think about Mary and even Joseph depending on who you talk to and who you read uh, but especially with Mary you need to think of a 13 to 18 year old girl it was customary in the Jewish world to to be uh, betrothed to to marry someone for at least girls at about 13 but by the time Jesus showed up on the scene it may have gone up to about 18 years old and and what would happen in in the marriages for the Jewish people it was a two-step process similar to what we have in that we have engagement and then an actual marriage ceremony but the engagement part was a much bigger deal and so they would come together in front of witnesses and they would become betrothed they would become engaged it wasn't like you went up on a mountain went out in the snow did whatever was the most photographic thing got on a knee and said will you marry me the the people would come together there would be witnesses and they would they would enter into a formal agreement that makes it sound far less romantic but they would enter into a formal agreement which was a promise to one day be married but from that point forward they were seen as married they would be called husband and wife in fact but they would not be together. They would not be together intimately. They would not be together hardly at all socially. They might run into each other at the market, but beyond that, it wasn't like a courtship or dating or anything. They would go live with their families and they lived separate lives. Uh, what even made it a stronger commitment, other than just, you know, this is what they culturally did, is that there were several gifts that could be given during, you know, that first step. And, and so the... The bride's dad would give a gift to the husband and the wife in order to set them up financially, in order to get them off on the right foot. Uh, the, uh, the. The groom's dad would give a gift to basically, you know, arrange the marriage. Like, hey, I'll give you three camels if you give your daughter to my son. And, and so that gift was given. And then often the husband would give a gift to the wife, the the person that he is going to be become betrothed to. And, and in all of that, it's interesting. I was just interested in that. But it shows how committed they truly were, right? This is beyond a ring. This is a contractual agreement. And so Mary and Joseph have entered into this agreement they're seen as husband and wife who live separately and in about a year's time a year or less they're going to come together they'll go through a more formal marriage ceremony they will consummate the marriage through sex and then they will live as as a husband and wife in the way that we think of a husband and wife today and so Matthew says here's your two characters but before they came together which means before they had sex Mary was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This is what we call in Christian circles the virgin birth. I never thought about this before, but I read it this week. It's funny we call it the virgin birth because it's really the virgin conception. The birth part is really unimportant when it comes to her virginity. But this is the virgin birth that we talk about in Christian circles. It's really interesting because it was one of the most emphasized doctrines of the early church. It's in the creeds and yet it is one of those things that we don't talk about or attach much meaning to. I, I struggle with how Matthew just throws it out there like, virgin she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit and what we want to do especially if you've gone to uh, any kind of biblical education if you have my degrees what you want to do is like wait what is let's talk about all of the details of how this came about and what the purpose is and what the meaning is and we got to dissect this because I mean what is Matthew doing dropping in one verse like hey she got pregnant and she was a virgin like can you imagine if I just said that to you without any explanation I promise this virgin's pregnant have a good day you You know, like what wait wait a minute. There's got to be there has to be more of a story there. It's such a simple verse, but it's such an important verse. And remember, Matthew's already gone to great lengths in his genealogy to change the language in order to show us that Jesus is not the son of Joseph and Joseph is not the dad of Jesus. Like he uses this this verb over and over, geneo, which is the word in the King James, which is how I, th- I read the Christmas story in my head, but like he, he, he begat, like this king begat this king and this king begat this king and it's this genealogy and he gets to Mary and Joseph and that verb goes from active to passive in order to really say like, hey, this wasn't their doing, this was God's doing. They did not begat Jesus. God intervened in order for this baby to be born. And now he says, here's why that change in language is important because before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Nowhere in the Bible is Joseph called Jesus' dad and nowhere in the Bible is Jesus called Joseph's son. It doesn't happen one time. What else is interesting about this virgin conception is that both Matthew and Luke include it in their birth narratives. And that's only startling because they're such different stories, the story of Matthew and Luke when they tell the birth story. And that's not to say they're different like they're contradictory, they just tell the story from completely different angles. It's like they're talking about the same thing but they're approaching it from totally different ways and in fact with totally different sources. Some people say that Joseph is the main source behind the story of Jesus' birth in the gospel of Matthew. That would not have been a first-hand source. It would have been second-hand source, but it's highly probable that that could have come from uh, Jesus' brothers who would have known how their dad told the story. The gospel of Luke, it's pretty widely believed, comes from the source of Mary herself, and that very well could have been a first-hand source. Luke sat with Mary. He said, tell me about it. What happened when Jesus was born? I'm trying to write in order account of his life and yet both of them take time out of their stories even though one has shepherds and one doesn't and one's focused on how Jesus moves around and one isn't and one focused on a on a a angel coming to Mary and one on an angel coming to Joseph they both take time to say this was a virgin conception. Luke one twenty six through 35. God sent his angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke gives us a little more information about how it all went down, but they both give us this virgin conception. And after this, Mary leaves. This is in my mind, not Mary's greatest idea she leaves for three months and goes away to be with her relative a relative named Elizabeth and she hangs out there for three months and she rolls back into Nazareth her hometown Joseph's hometown you know somewhere in the vicinity of four months pregnant and that's when our verse comes into play she's found to be pregnant because she looks pregnant right Uh, and and she shows back up into town and she's found to be pregnant i was I was very emotional this week as i as I thought about Mary and joseph and that 's never really struck me in any deep and meaningful way i don 't know if it 's because i 'm a parent now and i I kind of know the struggles of of uh, of being a parent i I know the difficulties of of having a wife who's who's struggled um, in her pregnancies and uh just something about it struck me and this, this isn't a passage about Mary and Joseph and I'm not gonna teach about Mary and Joseph but just think, about, just think about rolling into town four months pregnant and you've been promised to be married to this guy and you're in this period of time when you're really being tested for your faithfulness and you walk into Nazareth and everybody looks at you and thinks you're not faithful. And there's poor Joseph and we're gonna talk about how he responds to this next week, which is brilliant. What a hero of the faith. But man, we can't dismiss their role. And as Protestants, non-Catholics, we do that because we don't want to be accused of worshiping Mary, of putting Mary higher than uh, a human. Uh, We are quick to just call her regular uh, and I don't think she was regular. She was not supernatural any more than we can be by the power of the Holy Spirit, but she was not regular. God chose her and him for a reason, these kids. And, And the pressure they would have faced is incredible. But it's interesting how the thing about them that's that's important to me in this passage is that they never they never seem to i mean at least when you read the life of Jesus later, they never seem to like try to say, Oops, we got together when our parents weren't watching and we accidentally made a baby. It seems like they never tell anybody that joseph is the father of jesus in mark 6 3 it's this really interesting verse they're talking these people are talking about jesus and they say isn't this the carpenter isn't this mary's son and that's fascinating because nobody would ever call a kid uh, the son of the mother that just wouldn't happen they would say isn't this joseph's son but it seems that that the people around nazareth they knew that Joseph wasn't the father. And I don't think it would have been super wise for Mary and Joseph to run around going, we promise it's a virgin conception. That's not gonna go very far until you've seen the life of Jesus. I mean, you're carrying this crying baby that looks nothing like the son of God, right? Just like normal kid, that's what he looks like. It's just not gonna go very far. But it seems like they were unwavering in in their story that it wasn't Joseph's son at least. There's a passage that, that, that may or may not uh, actually be about Jesus not coming from Joseph, but at one point they look at Jesus in John's gospel and they say, we aren't the illegitimate children. And I don't know if they were taking a shot at Jesus or not. There's some debate there, but man, it's hard to hear it without thinking that the, there's a little bit of a shot at Jesus because he would have been called an illegitimate child from the time that he was a kid, And so the authors of the New Testament and apparently as Mary and Joseph's stories influenced the writing of the New Testament and not only that but the early church which these disciples and friends of Jesus were in, we don't think about that, but the early church had the guys that are in the Bible that hung out with Jesus. They take a strong stance that the virgin church The virgin birth is true. And then throughout the early, the later early church, the creeds come about, and and the creeds feel a need to include the virgin birth of Jesus. And it all leads to this one single question why? Why is this a big deal? What does it matter if Jesus was born of a virgin? The first answer I have to that question. And I don't know if this is the biblical intent, but the first answer I have to that question is simply this. It becomes a litmus test for how you think about Jesus, especially how you think about the supernatural things that Jesus and God can do. Uh, in the, at the end of the last century, uh, there was a, a strong movement away from from holding to biblical truths, and uh, the the nineteenth century can be described as a time when people tried to uh, not my words, but tried to kill God. They tried to dissect and disintegrate and tear at the the very truths of the Bible in large part, and and what happened out of that is two things became became Key. Uh, because what we would find as liberal or not liberal became really muddy at the end of the last century. And there's two questions. Do you believe Jesus got out of the grave? Was Jesus truly resurrected from the dead and was he born of a virgin? Because to deny the virgin birth is quite clearly to deny the truths of scripture. And the question that I have for people who try to deny the virgin birth is, how can you trust anything these gospel writers say if they are so intent on letting you know that Jesus was born of a virgin? The virgin birth is this litmus test to say, do you believe that God does the supernatural or not? Do you believe that God is just imminent or do you believe that he's transcendent? Do you believe that God can do things outside of the norm? Do you believe that Jesus was a supernatural person, that he was God-man, or do you believe that he was just a man? I, I... dream of, this will never happen unless you write me a check, but I dream of getting my doctorate of ministry at Duke University. It's a program that I, I really like and I called them a few years ago. I don't know why because you haven't written me a check, but, but I, I called them and, and, and talked with the director of their program and I just wanted to know about it and I asked him this question. I said, you know, when I think of Duke, I don't think of uh, a conservative biblical school. Uh, and, and I said, that's not a problem for me. I'm not worried about whether you're conservative or not. What I'm worried about is, is whether I'm going to just annoy people by holding to some biblical truths. And, and he responded to me by saying, you know, what's interesting about that is that every person in our, uh, in our divinity school holds to a belief in the virgin birth. That's how he told me where they stood on things. It's funny for a school that's mascot is the blue devils, um, but what can you do? Um, It's this litmus test, he didn't need to say more. He he was just saying, yeah, you would fit in fine here. Look, everybody believes in the virgin birth. And so you ask yourself, the, the, why the virgin birth? And one answer that you have to have is that it stands to reason that if people believe in the virgin birth, then, then they can grasp and, and, and believe in, in the gospel stories, the life of Jesus and the supernatural things that happen in it. But that can't be the only reason for the virgin birth because we have plenty of things like that, right? Jesus walks on water. That's <laughs> like, hey, do you believe Jesus walked on water or not? Jesus calms a storm, right? Like, uh, do, we, do we actually believe those things? And so the, the question still hangs, like why did they, why did they inc- even though it's become that for us, why did they need to include the virgin birth? And the reason that I, I thought it was wise to preach on this one single verse is because I remember reading in, in school, um, in my undergraduate degree, this this book called Christian Theology by Miller J. Erickson. And you know it's gonna be a big book when a guy includes his middle initial. That's pretty much all it is, right? And, and so it's like, you know, we have one verse in Matthew on the virgin birth and Miller Erickson devotes a chapter to it. You know, like uh, it's, it's very big. And, and I remember, and I don't remember much from my schooling um, because I probably read it about, 2 p.m. when I had a 3 p.m. test on the subject right and so I don't remember that much but I remember this section on the virgin birth where he kept saying these reasons that people give for why the virgin birth is important and then he would shoot them down and that was kind of the whole chapter like hey here's a reason people give and that's not really a good reason for the virgin birth and I was like well why (laughs) Why why the virgin birth I just remember all the reasons that it's not and And so I want to give you a couple of those, two of those from that chapter in Millard Erickson's Christian Theology. And the first is that some people will say, that in order for Jesus to be sinless he had to be born of a virgin and we believe as Christians that Jesus lived sinlessly his entire life that he never broke the commands or the will of God ever one time and that is the reason in large part that he at the end of his life could die for our sins he had no need to die for his own sins this is something that we cling strongly to I was dating a girl once and, and, and we were I, this is the dumbest argument I was in studying theological things at the time but we were having this debate with her family about whether you know Christmas is more important or Easter or something like that I know it's ridiculous and, and I said in the middle of this well every day of Jesus life was important because he lived sinlessly and and her mom they were Episcopalian so you can blame that but her mom said no he wasn't like whoa, no I gotta lead this lady to Jesus and that's hard to do when you're dating somebody's daughter that's like how I was thinking and and so I just went to do my homework I found these verses that that pointed to the sinlessness of Jesus and I came over to pick up her daughter one time and and I I just sat it on the counter this list of verses and and the next I thought like there was going to be some discussion some debate the next time I came over she just said I believe you Jesus was sinless it's like wow that has never worked in the history of the world like just leaving somebody verses on their kitchen counter who knew if I could lead people to Jesus like that I'd be breaking into people's houses with a couple of verses but it's pretty clear in scripture and I tell you that story to say it's a pretty clear doctrine in scripture that Jesus was sinless but it's a funny idea to connect that to the virgin birth and this is what Millard Erickson says because it assumes and some of you women will probably agree with this but it assumes that sin comes through the male line Like women are somehow perfect and without sin and and if you could just be born of a virgin, then you would live an incredible, incredible, the women are laughing because they're like, I feel that, I felt that my entire life and if, if, I mean, I'm raising a son and a daughter and this doctrine appears clear when you watch how they live their lives. You tell Hudson what to not do and he does it. You tell Hazel that's dangerous, don't do it. She really, you know, probably won't do it but... There's no reason to believe uh, that sin is passed through the male. It just doesn't make sense. The, 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 next, um, the next thing that people point to is the deity of Jesus. We believe in the incarnation that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That is clear throughout scripture as well. John MacArthur holds this view and I, you know that I quote John MacArthur a lot. I respect him a lot as a scholar of the Bible. He says real incarnation demands a real virgin Birth, but Millard Erickson just asked this question like and it's such a good question, like why you know, I mean, if God can supernaturally bring a baby through a virgin like. He could have done it in a million different ways. Could he not have done it through a man and a woman as well? I mean, it wasn't like so unnatural that the baby just popped out or something, right? She had to go through the whole pregnancy. She delivered the baby. He was laid in a manger. You know the story. There seems to be no evidence to support that in order for Jesus to be God and man, he had to be, he had to come from a virgin. And there's this other thing about that. that Jesus, not by the name Jesus and not as a man, but the second person of what we call the Trinity, this being that we refer to now as Jesus, he's always existed. He, He was God whether he was born of a virgin or not. He could have snapped his fingers and appeared as an adult. It would have been fine. It didn't matter. And so now I've done for you what Millard Erickson did for me. <laughs> like, here's the reasons that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin or something to that effect. But what Millard Erickson does is he says this is a secondary doctrine. Not secondary in that it's not important to believe, but secondary in that it supports other things that we think are so important. Like perhaps the sinlessness of Jesus or the deity of Jesus. But he points to a couple of others. Our salvation is supernatural. It's not something that was man-made. It's not something that we can work for. It's not something that we earned. It's not something that we could do on our own. That is clear. And the virgin birth reminds us of that because man and woman couldn't even make the baby that would allow for us to be saved. When we think about salvation, we must remember that salvation is an act of God, not an act of, of people, not an action of people. I think this applies to how we try to phrase I've already used, and if you're not a Christian, I'm sorry for using such a Christian phrase, leading people to Jesus. This means we want people to believe that Jesus died for their sins, that Jesus came back to life, and that Jesus is offering forgiveness for their sins and a relationship with God through him. We want people to accept that and declare Jesus is Lord, and so often we who are Christians think, I have to get that done. I have to have the perfect words. I have to have the perfect plan, And the virgin birth stands to remind us that our perfect plans will never get the job done. Salvation is always an act of God. It's always been an act of God. It's a secondary doctrine that supports this. Salvation is a gift of grace, not something that we can earn or work for. It doesn't matter how bad you've been, you can still be saved, and it doesn't matter how good you are, you can still be unsaved. You cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot obtain a relationship with God by working harder, by giving more, by volunteering more hours. You cannot earn it. And the virgin birth reminds us of that. It stands to say, look, look, you people, you think you can earn salvation. You couldn't even bring the baby into the world. It was an act of God and your salvation is an act of God. It's an act of grace. But this is the one where I think Millard Erickson gets it right. I think he's actually, I think there's an answer, by the way, if you're wondering, does Chad see a real answer to the question, why a virgin birth? I do. And and the last thing that he says is that it points to the uniqueness of Jesus as Savior. If you've never read the Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, read them because it's clear from the beginning to the end when you really pay attention to what's being said that Jesus is not like any other human that's ever lived. And the virgin birth right at the beginning of the life of Jesus says, this is not a unique This this is a unique person. This is not an average person. He's given this great genealogy full of bad and good characters, full of really evil men and and godly men, full of full of people who worshipped idols and people who worshiped God with all their hearts. And it would be easy to show up at his birth and say, Wow, what a crazy genealogy, this poor kid, right? I mean what a bad family. And then Matthew says, wait a minute. I want you to know even at birth, even at birth, this being, this person was unique, he was set apart, he was holy, he was different than any other person who has ever lived. And and, and I would add to what Millard Erickson says and I I would say it doesn't only, and it's not meant to just point to him being unique, it's it's meant to point to something specific about him being unique and that is this, that Jesus is the son of God of God, Jesus is the son of God, in Luke one thirty-five, at the end of that passage I already read when the angel comes to Mary, the last thing that's stated there is this, so the holy one to be born will be called the son of God, Hey, you're gonna gonna conceive and give birth. You're gonna be overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're like, I don't have a clue what that means. You know, like, what does that even mean? How am I gonna get pregnant? And he says, look, here's here's what it points to, that Jesus is the son of God. Matthew has said Jesus is the son of David, which means he's going to be a king for the Israelites. uh, Matthew said that Jesus is the son of Abraham, which means he's going to be king of all. That's exactly what we talked about last week. And now Matthew says, not only is he the son of David and the son of Abraham, He is the son of God. When we think about Jesus as the Messiah, we need to think about the Messiah being the son of God. And what's so interesting is if you look through the Gospel of Matthew at these very important moments in the life of Jesus as he tells the story of Jesus so that his Jewish brethren might come to believe that this is actually the Messiah but not the Messiah that they thought he would be. At very key points we read this phrase, Son of God. Two examples, I won't read the verses, but in Matthew three seventeen and seventeen five, that's Jesus' baptism. When he gets dunked by John the Baptist, he comes out, a dove descends. God says, this is my son. At the transfiguration where Jesus, uh, humanity is pulled back and, and three of his closest disciples get to see a picture of him as a divine being. As he glows, he radiates, he shines, he's white and bright. They get to see that and a voice comes from heaven saying, this is is my son. In Matthew 4, 3, as Jesus is tempted by Satan, the tempter, Satan himself, comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt who Jesus is in Matthew 8, 29. This is demons talking. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? In Matthew 14, Jesus walks on water. Peter gets out on the water with him. There's a huge storm. And then they get back into the boat. Long story short, go read it. It's a great story. And then it says, then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. In Matthew 16, 16, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do people say I am? And they say, well, probably one of the prophets. And then he says, who do you say I am? And they say, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. In Matthew 26, 63, Jesus is on trial and it says the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Are you really this person that we've been looking forward to? Matthew 27, 40 is Jesus hangs on the cross. People look up and they mock him and they say, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And then in Matthew 27, 54, directly after Jesus breathes his last breath, he dies on that same cross. It says, when the centurion and those With him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. But those Roman soldiers got one thing wrong because they didn't understand that even after his death, he still was and will always be the son of God He got out of the grave a few days later. He sits at the right hand of his father in heaven where he rules and reigns over all things, acting as our prophet, priest, and king. And what's so fascinating about the virgin birth is it points to this very thing that Jesus is the son of God. And the reality is that thousands of years almost later, the question still remains, who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? And your entire life hinges on the answer to that question. And the world will say very nice things about Jesus. They will tell you that he is a great teacher, that he was a revolutionary, that he is a guy whose teachings we should listen to and follow because he was for peace and love and he helped move the culture forward. Some people will say that he is just a swear word. But some people will tell you that he was a great man, one of the most influential who ever lived. But the question that the virgin birth sets in front of us is not whether we think Jesus is cool or nice or good. It's the question of this do we do we really, do we really, do we really believe that he is the Son of God? Not just was he a great eminent man that came to be with people and loved and was gracious and kind and taught well. But do we believe that he is also the son of God who rules and reigns and sits transcendent upon a throne. We've so cheapened Christianity in our culture because we've said you just believe that Jesus died for your sins and that's it but what we've forgotten to tell people is that if you believe that Jesus died for your sins then what you need to do is you need to declare him king and lord and give your life to him being a Christian is not just a mental belief these demons knew they said hey are you going to torture us before the time before it's appointed before the whole thing the thing goes down the demons believe and shudder, James says. They know that Jesus died and rose again. But they haven't declared him their king, their Lord, and their Savior. And when we look at the virgin birth, it stands there and it says, Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe it or not? It's so easy to believe Jesus died. <laughs> Every person that believes Jesus lived believes Jesus died. <laughs> How he died might be up for a debate. Whether he came back to life is really debated. But every person believes that Jesus died and most honest people at least believe he lived. The question that stands in the middle of becoming a Christian or not becoming a Christian is is what the virgin birth stands to declare and that is Jesus is the son of God and I just want you to know today that whether for the first time or for the hundredth time you need to ask yourself who do I say he is? Who do I say he is? And, and you need to look at your life and say what does my life declare about who I think he is? Because if you're life reflects that Jesus was just a baby who laid in a manger and lived a pretty good life as he grew up, then it's not reflecting what the virgin birth declares. It's not reflecting that he is the son of God. And so this morning I would ask that you would look inside and you would ask yourself the question, who do I say Jesus is? And that you would remember that the virgin birth so miraculous, right? If it's really true, it's so miraculous. And it says you should answer that question by declaring him to be the Son of God. Let me pray that that will happen, Lord Jesus. It's like I said at the beginning of my sermon, God. It's so easy for me to to focus on on you know the intimacy that I have with you uh, when I pray, God. It, it can be so conversational, and I think that has its place. That can be really good. That's really valuable. But God, I think we also need to remember that you are, that when you came, you've always been Jesus, the son of God. And that makes you uniquely, and powerfully, better and greater than us. Lord, I think about how we talk to kids about praying and we say, just talk to, talk to Jesus like you're talking to a friend we ought to say talk to jesus like you're talking to a friend and and the son of god a king who reigns over all I pray, God, for anybody who's here this morning, any person who will listen to this online that doesn't believe that you're the son of God and maybe they've liked the idea of Christianity, they like the idea of you being the savior, but they have not given you their lives, they've not followed you, God, because because they really don't see you as the son of God. They see you as a great prophet, they see you as a great leader, they see you as a revolutionary, they see you as a nice guy, they see you as somebody who's who's interesting, God. I pray that you would convict them in their hearts right now and they would call into question whether or not you are truly the son of God and I pray for those of us who have declared you to be the son of God and we like Peter God believe that when you came to earth it it wasn't the beginning of your existence but you existed forever in heaven God and you, you, you are eternal I pray God that we would live lives and we would celebrate Christmas in a way that reflects that we see you that way God, I think so much of, of what I've said this morning can be seen in our prayers. And I pray that when we pray, we, we, would, we would remember that you are the Son of God and when we sing, God, we would, it would just be reflected that we're not singing to some guy. We're singing to the Son of God. As we celebrate you as the Messiah this season, I, I just ask that we would remember that as Messiah, you are our King, even if we don't think about it, and that you are the Son of God even if we believe something different. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, During this next song, I just ask that you respond.